Sisters and brothers, today we focus on mercy living. We're going to focus on why mercy is a necessary part of our Christian life and part and parcel with Christian living, not an additive to. We're going to talk about mercy, what motivates mercy living, what motivates your living in the reality of mercy and being merciful toward others. What is it that might prevent you from living out of a base of mercy in your life toward other people? And what might help you in such mercy living? Jesus said this in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You see, Christian living is about receiving and releasing mercy. Receiving God's mercy into our lives and releasing it out into the lives of others around us. Whether they, they we think they deserve it or uh, it should go toward them or not, it doesn't matter. Mercy and Christian living is about receiving God's mercy into our lives and letting that mercy flow out of our lives as well. Receiving God's mercy. When you are captured, you see, by God's mercy, you are marked. Your life is marked when God has captured you in His mercy. When He has captured you in His grip of mercy, you look like the one who has been merciful to you. When, uh, when my boys were, were much younger and new into our family, uh, there was a series of comedy movies around. There was a character in those movies named Minnie Me. And uh, my son, and because my name, my first name starts with the letter B, uh, people would look at my son and they looked at how similar he resembled me and they called him not Minnie Me, but Minnie B. And uh, that was a, a moniker for him for a long time because physically, when he and I walked into a room for a long season, uh, and there was no mistaking whose son he was and whose father I was. It was very obvious that the two of us resembled each other. And it's even more remarkable when you think about parents and children, and even more than the physical similarities, when children begin to resemble the characteristics of their parents, they begin to uh, have similar senses of humor and laughter like their parents. They begin to talk like their parents with similar rhythms of speech and cadence and so forth. It is so remarkable when those parents, uh, children begin to really, in deeper ways, more than just the physical, begin to resemble their parents because they have been marked with the old psychological terms of both nature, the DNA that God gave them, but also the nurture and the home and the patterns of which they have watched and simulated into their life from their parents. And it is a fantastic reality. But those children begin to be marked. They're imprinted with things of their parents. A son begins to be imprinted with that uh, of his father, the, the characteristics of personality of the father at times. And so it is with God. You see, when we receive the mercy of God, we become marked people. You are marked with the mercy of God. It is imprinted upon you and shaped in your life because mercy is such a fundamental characteristic of the personality of God. And you see, as your life is marinated in Jesus... You begin to do mercy in your life. You begin to demonstrate mercy in your life because your life is marinated in the wonder of Jesus 
in your life. It's an understanding that we must come to God, we come to Jesus, to receive the mercy of God. This is demonstrated in Luke chapter 18. You might remember there that there's a story of Jesus talking about two different people. One, a Pharisee, a religious leader of the day, uh, was very scrupulous in keeping track of all of the crossing the T's and dotting the I's of how a good religious person should live his life. And in that living, uh, was swollen with pride about how he lived life. He would go to the temple and he would pray. And even the example Jesus gives of this Pharisee praying is, is he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this other guy. He points to this uh, tax collector. That was uh, a, a euphemism in many ways for somebody who was utterly sinful. Somebody who had really blown it over and over with a choice of profession, the way that they treated their own countrymen and so forth. And, and he says, I thank God in his prayer life that I'm not like this one. Because I am righteous in my own self. Because I keep all of the, the law. But the tax collector, at that same scene, he stands, he can't even approach the temple. Because he recognizes his humility. He recognizes his need of the mercy of God. And he stands far away, beating his chest. That's a sign of contrition, a sign of humility, a sign of repentance. And he's beating his chest, and his, his refrain is this, Have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, it's this understanding of receiving the mercy of God and extending that out uh, into the lives of others. And I wonder, Matthew, Matthew wrote this gospel, collected uh, and, and cataloged this Sermon on the Mount for us, was also known as a tax collector. And I wonder uh, how much that uh, particular prayer story might have meant to him and uh, knowing what it was to be rejected by his own people. But you see, Jesus also told another parable. A parable many of us know is the unmerciful servant. The unmerciful, you hear the word mercy in there, the unmerciful servant. And the story goes something like this. Is uh, there, There's a king who is about to go off on a journey, and he comes, brings all of his employees together to settle accounts with them, and one comes, and he's indebted to the king, and, and uh, he, the king has the right and threatens actually to throw him and his whole family into debtor's prison. And uh, the man throws himself at the feet of the king and pleads and begs for mercy and forgiveness. And the king, out of his gracious choice, forgives the debt. He displays mercy over this servant. A wonderful picture, but the parable's not done. Jesus continues, because that servant who gets up off of his knees after pleading for forgiveness and mercy for his own debt to be forgiven, he stands up, he turns around, goes and finds a fellow employee, a fellow servant of the king, and uh, who is indebted to him. And he tells the man, it's time for you to pay up what you owe me. And the man, similarly to this other servant, does not have the means to pay. He falls down on his knees. He begs forgiveness, pleads for mercy. And this servant, who had just been given the mercy of the king and the forgiveness of his debt, he chooses not to then forgive the one who owed him a much smaller amount. A much smaller amount. And when the king finds out about it, he calls that unmerciful servant 
back into his presence. And he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? You you get the point of what Jesus is saying. Mercy throughout the scripture is a hugely important topic of our life, both in knowing what God has done for us and the mercy that he's demonstrated to us in Jesus, but also in the way that you and I are to live with each other. You and I are to live in the world being mercy bound toward others. And that is part of Christian living. You see, we we know what mercy is because we have received the mercy of God, the forgiveness of our sin, the, the new life that God calls us into, a new birth, the promise and the fulfilling of a, a full life in Christ. And now we're set free then in the rest of our lives to go out and to demonstrate and share and to pass along that mercy, to release that mercy to other people. Of course, probably the most well-known picture of mercy in the Scripture is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And the this parable is a call to mercy. It's a call to Christians to be about mercy, to let mercy be a demonstration of living faith. Is that if mercy is not a characteristic of your life that, that appears uh, periodically in your life, if not regularly in your life, then, then what is the demonstration of your faith? Because Jesus calls you to more than just some, some formulation, verbal formulation of the gospel. Jesus calls you to more than that. Not not that you need more than that, but the sense that Jesus alone, you stand in what Jesus has done, and the reality that you have come into new life in Jesus uh, is more than just this profession of faith, but it also, it it, it begins to be woven into your life, and it begins to ooze out the reality that you and your life has now been touched, you've been marked by Jesus, and that marking begins to be evident in one of the great displays of God's mercy and forgiveness and salvation in your life is how you practice mercy toward others in your life. I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, The call to mercy in the parable of Good Samaritan is a call toward the essence of love. What is it to be lovers of people? And I don't mean they're in the, the Shakespearean, Romeo and Juliet kind of love, I'm talking about biblical love. The way that we agape love each other. The way that we choose to love in our actions toward other people. You might remember the story in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The religious expert walks up. He's uh, described as a, a teacher of the law. He's a, a religious expert. He knows the scriptures inside and out. He would be somebody that people would come and consult if there's a religious question of the day. He comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, you're a teacher of the law. How do you read and interpret the scriptures? And the expert basically summarizes. He says the scriptures boil down to loving God, to having a heart dedicated toward God, and to demonstrate your love of neighbor in your life. And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Well done. Bravo. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. 
do this and you will live. Love God fully, completely, utterly, and love your neighbor rightly. Now, I think even in that simple response, the teacher, this religious expert who's asking the question, he's beginning to feel the weight of Jesus. And the question, I think he might begin to start sweating. He might start wiping the sweat because he's getting a little nervous. He's like, wait a minute. Uh, I want Jesus to tell me exactly what this means. And then the scripture says that he wants to justify himself. And so he asks this question, well, who then is my neighbor? So what he's asking is, what are the limits around how I am to, to work and to live this sort of life? You see, the expert wants Jesus to explain the requirements of the law, the requirements of his religious structured framework in a way that the, the religious leader, in a way that he can accomplish it in his own strength, in his own moral heart and decisions, in his own good actions, in his own individual strength. He's like, please, Jesus, explain this. And I think that's the subtext behind the question. But he's, he's sweating now because how can he be sure that he's living up to everything that God desires? And what Jesus wants him to see is that, of course, he cannot live up to everything required. And then he tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably remember the story of the Good Samaritan. It talks about a man who's uh, 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 heading down this road, a road that's uh, well known at certain points to be rough and treacherous because there are bandits and uh, others, and uh, bandits fall upon him. He gets mugged on this road. He gets stripped of all his valuable possessions. He's beaten and left half dead on the side of the road. And uh, he's barely clinging to life, it seems. And uh, he's just hoping, you think, for somebody to come by. And sure enough, a good religious leader, the priest, comes by on his way to the temple. And of course, he sees him, and, and you, you begin to expect, well, of course, a good religious person. Uh, he's going to go over and, and offer some help. But no, he, he steps around and walks around and keeps on going. And then a Levite, another religious leader in, in that day, comes by. And you think, well, okay, here's a second chance for the good religious people in the world to do the right thing. And does he? No. He steps around and goes by the other side of the road and on he goes. And then a third person comes. You know, this is the Samaritan, the one who's deemed to be good uh, because of the things that he did in that moment. You see, he chooses to stop. He chooses to uh, to take the time that's needed. He chooses in that moment to give of his own income. He chooses in that moment to be interrupted and, and so forth. And so, you see, what Jesus is asking them, he says, who is it now? Was it the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan? Who is it that did right? And you can almost hear the religious leader sort of gritting his teeth. And he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, right? The Samaritans in that cultural day, there were ethnic divisions and strife. And he doesn't even bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan did. He says the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. The one who was mercy living on him. The one who was... Uh, extending the mercy of God through him. You see, Jesus is trying to humble us, you and me, in this passage, with the love that 
matters of our life so that we will be willing to receive the love that God offers to our life. You see, I think out of the story, the man is realizing that in his own goodness, his own good moral choices, that he cannot measure up to what God requires of his life. And so he needs someone else to provide the mercy of his life. And that's what Jesus is trying to help him and us to see that we cannot stand in our own moral rightness. We cannot stand in our own sense of good choices to be honored and acceptable before the Lord because God will only do that as we come through and to Jesus into his life, into the full life that he offers to us. And when we receive God's love through Jesus, you see, we are filled we are strengthened. We are motivated in new ways. And we are hungry to do mercy with Jesus. You see, mercy for a Christian. Brother and sister, hear me now. Mercy is not some add-on to your Christian life. Mercy is not like going into the hamburger restaurant and staring at the menu and saying, well, I think I'll have pickles today, or maybe I'll try onions, or maybe I'll put a little ketchup on my hamburger or the secret sauce. That'll make it really nice, this one meal. Mercy is not an add-on. Mercy is an outflow of your life. You see, you are imprinted. You are marked once you've received the, the mercy of God through Jesus. You are marked now, and your life should begin to demonstrate the great mercy of God into the lives around you. It's not optional. Mercy is not an optional reality in your life if you're a Christian man or woman. It is not optional and it is not arbitrary. Mercy is part and parcel with our living. I'm so indebted to Tim Keller and others this week for helping with uh, some of these thoughts. And in his book, Ministries of Mercy, uh, he pulls out a, a couple of ideas that I've borrowed and adapted a little bit on how to how, how do we how do we begin to live more in in this living this life of mercy? How do we take on a mercy living in our lives? Well, one suggestion is is to begin to take steps toward living more simply, to take strides into living as simply as possible uh, for you. You see, as simply as possible. So that you have more to share. And, and you know, that, that means a lot of different things for a lot of different people, depending on your family makeup and your income and your expenses, all of that. I get it. But just ask the question this week as you, you reflect with the Lord, how, is there a way, God, that I can live more simply so that I can have more to share with others? What a great thing if churches across this country and around the world that every Christian would take this mindset more to heart. How can I, God, live more simply so that I can share more freely? Wouldn't that be great if more and more of us were called into generous living in such a way? Ron Sider is a well-known uh, Christian writer. Uh, he, he wrote some books, one of his uh, earlier books, that I came across was titled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And it just has some interesting thoughts about how to live more simply. And he talks about a concept I've not heard many others talk about, which he describes as the graduated time. The graduated time. 
And what he talks about is that uh, the, the percentage of one's tithe, he suggests, that uh, if people are going to live simply, to live a life of mercy and generosity, that the percentage of our tithe giving to the church, giving to Christian ministry and mer- ministries of mercy, that the percentage of what we give in tithing ought to increase uh, percentage-wise as our inc- uh, income increases. Uh, and then he calls for a radical, a radical lowering of our lifestyle in order to open a way. And what he's suggesting is, wouldn't it be amazing if over the course of a lifetime, instead of thinking about you know how difficult it might be to give 2% of my income at a tithe, or, or to think that 10% even is a maximum uh, ceiling of my tithe, he suggests, what if Christians over the course of their life as they continue to live more simply, year after year after year, they begin to have more ability, more capacity to live generously. And what if more of us came to a place where we were able to tithe 20% of our income, or 30% of our income, or 50% of our income? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But what if? What if God stirred your heart to live more simply, so that you had the ability to give and share more freely. Here's what the gospel or the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because to be able to live more simply, uh, it requires that we, we live and have a heart that's shaped with contentedness. We must be contented if we're going to have a right understanding and be in the right position to be able to reflect and respond to God. Here's what the Bible says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Listen. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You see that? We are to be people who are contented and to be focused more on godliness than anything else, because that is our great gift and the great goal of our life. Godliness with contentment is our goal. Biblical contentment, let's talk a little bit more about that. How, how do we live a life of mercy? And to have invite God's Spirit to adjust our living, uh, not only is it to consider what it is to live more simply, but how do we actually live in this contented reality? What is biblical Contentment, And I am beginning to see of more and more some of the dimensions of contentment and what it has to say for the wealthy, not just for the poor. Often when I think of contentment, I don't know about you, but I often think first about, well, what about the poor? They need to be content. I need to be content. And I have a lot of poor seasons in my life. But to learn the secret of being content Knowing that if I don't have very much, the Apostle Paul says, it's not, I, I, I won't find contentment once I have a certain level of accumulated goods. That's not what contentment is. My contentment, even if I'm poor, is in the Lord and in the presence of God in my life. But I'm beginning to understand a little bit more now, uh, as I continue to work with this concept of contentment, of, of the contours of contentment for the wealthy, as well, because the wealthy also need to learn contentment, maybe more so than the poor. Because the Bible tells us in that same passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we are to be people who 
keep our life free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. Here's what the Bible says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, the Bible doesn't say that money is bad. Not at all. But if our hearts are geared toward money in an unhealthy, unholy way, it will spoil us. It will ruin us in our contented life with God. Even if we have a lot, it can ruin our lives. And the Bible then talks, the same passage a little later, talks to those who do have wealth. It doesn't say, if you're wealthy, you need to give everything away. But it does place responsibilities on those who have wealth. Out of contented living. So that you can live more simply. So that you are, you're able to give more freely. To live more simply. So that you can give more freely. Here's what the Bible says later in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich... In this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. Listen, to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What a message for the wealthy in our day and age to live a life of increased simplicity, to live a life of increased generosity, to live a life of greater freedom that is born out of contentedness. Contented in, in the Lord, focused on the future and eternity and living our life between now and the moment we step into eternity with a generosity and a focus on the mercy of God. As we receive mercy from God, we now release mercy into the lives uh, that God places in and around you for His glory and for your good. Brothers and sisters, may this be indicative of all of our lives. May we be mercy living every phase, every season, every day. May it be so of us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Living God, thank you for your mercy toward us. Thank you for your generous actions toward us. Help us as we are marked people. Help us as your, your mercy has been imprinted on our soul and heart. May it be evident in the way that we extend mercy and share in mercy and do mercy toward other people. Guide us, we pray, Jesus, in your name, for your sake, we pray. Amen. Because of God's great mercy.